0: Amen. Most of the world believes this morning that Jesus is dead and that they are alive without him. Looks can be deceiving. The opposite is true. Um, It's now April something, right? Three and something months since some of us made New Year's resolutions. How are those going? I kind of have a rule in my house that on January 1st, we make the New Year's resolution never to make a New Year's resolution so that we um, fail immediately through self-referential inconsistency. We don't have to worry about feeling like a failure later in the year, you know. One of the things that happens a lot is a general sense that human change either doesn't happen, or when there is change, change, it's pretty much always bad. You hear people say a lot, people never change, or you never change, or whatever, but almost every time people refer to change, it's almost always in the negative. I mean, there's that saying, nobody likes to be changed except the baby, right? And I don't know about yours, but mine always yells at me, you know? Um, but some of the other ones, like, you've changed. Like, that refers to change, but it's, that's not a compliment, just in case you're wondering right? And times change, like things change. One of the things that's interesting about when people talk about change is whether they believe it does happen or doesn't. Everybody believe it do, believes it does happen and that it doesn't happen. It's just, it always seems to be bad. Things that do change, we want to stay the same, and things that we wish they would change, they never seem to. Part of the reason why this is relevant to Resurrection Sunday and to the book of Ezekiel is, is that this This kind of attitude ultimately becomes a prophecy that a prophet can be applied to Because when we essentially believe that people don't change, we're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy We're becoming prophets and we're creating a prophecy that's in fact false But that if we believe it's true often tends to act like it's true When we believe people don't change, we, when we say it, we believe it, we act like it, and then we believe it more So then we say it more, and then we believe it more, and then we do it more and it goes round and round, it goes, until you have whole generations of people who actually believe people can't change because they've almost never seen it. Because for a few generations we've taught ourselves people can't change. You know, we're, we're one, we're, in, we're new on the block with that belief. You go back a couple generations, people didn't think that. In fact, one of the things that, um, that we know about human beings is the fact that we don't believe people change deeply, from the inside out, to the very core of who they are, out to their furthest extremities. We don't believe that happens, but it's not because of our view of human nature. I mean, if you look at what the hard sciences or what psychology or some of these sciences say about human beings, there isn't a sense in these that people aren't adaptable. All of the—all of the sciences will tell us that human beings are enormously adaptable creatures. We, it's how we took over the world. People change all the time. The the issue is not our nature. The issue is our condition. You see, we can change, but we don't. And the reason for that is we think we want to change, but we don't. Human beings don't change mainly because we don't want to. We say, well, wait a second. That's not true, Dick. There's lots of things I'd like to change about myself. No. You would like to be different— But you don't want to change. Because human beings, for the most part, pretty darn predictably, will not change off of their plan that they've set up to reach happiness in their way until they have no other option left. Which will plainly summarize the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel for you. If you want to like 37, well, what happened in the first 30 chapters? Here's what happened. The whole first 32 chapters of Ezekiel is God saying to the people of Israel, the, f- the old plan is over. That old plan where you were doing your thing, where you had figured out what you thought salvation was for you, whatever you thought was going to make you happy, wealthy, wise, or whatever that was, you lived in a way that you thought would achieve that, and that's over now. If you look at the history of Israel for about 500 years, God gave them a land and gave them a law and gave them an identity, and they took that and they did whatever they wanted to do. The parts of what God had given them and told them that fit in with what they wanted to do, they did. The stuff they didn't, they pretended like they were doing and didn't do. And after about a half a millennia of that, God had had enough. And at two different times, he had a foreign army come in and bring their people in exile in 605, and then a few years later. But... In the fir- There were three exiles, and in the first two, the city of Jerusalem wasn't totally destroyed. And so there were these people, thousands of them, living in the city of Babylon, 700 miles from their home, and they wanted to go home. They wanted to get back on the old plan, and, they, and it still looked possible. You know, something could happen here in Babylon. They could let us go. We could go home. We could set up shop again. It'll be fine. And they had false prophets who knew they wanted to hear that, who were saying, hey, two more years. Two years. We're going home. It's the word of the Lord. Listen to me. And they were like, oh, awesome. And then Jeremiah wrote him a was like, those guys are lying. It's going to be 70 years. But they didn't believe it. And so Ezekiel, for the first seven years of his ministry, you know what he had to do? He basically had to be a bad news guy. He, for seven years, he was like, look, we're not going back. We're not going back. It's not going to happen. The whole plan is over. That whole thing where we did what we wanted to, and we ignored God, except for the things that we already liked, that's over. And They're like Jerusalem's still standing. We're going to be fine. Except seven years later, the king who was king of Jerusalem rebelled again, and this time the Babylonians destroyed everything. The old plan was over. So then you get into the, the 30s, and in chapter 34, God says one of the reasons why things were so bad then is because your leaders were worthless your pastors. And in this context, the priests, they were just telling you whatever you wanted to hear. They did whatever they wanted to. They made a good living from eating the skin off your backs, but they didn't really give you what you required spiritually. And so I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to be their shepherd, he says. He doesn't say I'm going I'm to appoint new ones. He says I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to be your shepherd, he says. Right? And you're kind of like, that's kind of interesting. How's that going to happen? And then in chapter 37 is really the first bit of good bad news which basically puts forward the two most straightforward propositions of Christian faith, the life of Jesus and the whole Old Testament, which is, A, you can't change. You can't change. You think you can change? You can't change. You won't change. And even though you've persuaded yourself you want to change, you don't really want to change. You can't change. And two, you can change. right? And that's what this passage is about. That's what the life of Jesus is about. That's what the Bible is about. And all of Christian faith is based on those two premises. You cannot change. Can't. You don't even want to. And you could change. Okay? That's that written in English. Now, to kind of get this in perspective here, let's go through the main ideas of chapter 37. The first is, is that There's a a very significant point here that we are helpless to make ourselves alive. Now, you might be like, well, is that really what this is about? Okay, think about this. The whole first part is is becoming acquainted with bones, right? Now, it does not say that God showed Ezekiel a valley of, of dry bones he watched in the distance, does it? It says that God took him into the valley where there were bones everywhere and made him walk back and forth in it. So Ezekiel, in this vision, I mean, he's, he's stepping over skulls and around fractured femurs, and he's, he's walking through these bones, this human bones everywhere, right? I was doing family devotions with my kids this week, and we we're going through Proverbs right now, and there was a proverb that described something. I'm trying to teach them how to interpret Proverbs, right, even though they're 11 and 9 and 6. 6. Um, and so I'm like, okay, um, if the verse paints an image— how are you supposed to interpret the verse? And one of them cracked and goes, to use your imagination. I was like, exactly, right? It's an image. This is an image. It's a valley of dry bones. There's bones everywhere. He's walking in and back and forth among them. Use your imagination. It's supposed to communicate something, right? And he said he looked at the bones and they were dry. I think that King James says, behold, they were very dry. You're like, well, that's an interesting phrase, right? Because—and here's the thing. These are not just corpses. These are not—and these are not people who are mostly dead, all of Monty Python and the Meaning of Life or the Princess Bride, okay? These are—I mean, these are—everything's rotted away. There's nothing but bones left, and even the bones themselves are so bleached and brittle in the sun that they are very dry, okay? And then God kind of pushes the issue, right? He goes, hey, Ezekiel, son of man, Can they live? Can those bones live? Right? And Ezekiel's response is, (laughs) only you know that. There is nothing in my experience, nothing that I know of, nothing in my power that I can do to make those bones live. I mean, if there's some way that they can live, it's because you know there's some way they can live, because there's no way I know that they can live. You see the point? The point is that these bones are totally helpless— What we're going to find out in a minute is these bones— in fact, it says in verse 11, who are the bones? The—you are the bones, O house of Israel. Typical humanity, the Jews. That's you, he's saying. It's not—we're not talking about people who have died that I'm going to raise from the dead. This sermon is not about that you and I are going to die, we're going to rot and be bones, and then God is going to raise us from the dead. That's not the point of the sermon, because that's not the point of this passage. This passage isn't about raising the dead. The second thing that comes across in this passage is that you and I need to be made alive. We, the way we are right now, are the dry bones. Not when we're dead. Right now, you and I are those dry bones. And we need to be made alive. You see, you can't change. Point one, you can't change. We are totally helpless. But you can change if and only if God supernaturally changes you. We can be made alive. If you listen to what God says in this verse, listen to the activity of the verbs in this. He says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and there is no Oh, sorry, that's not supposed to be there. That's, that was, that was a, that's a Microsoft word I, I blame. Um, th- when you read that, right? When you read that, that's not a self-help passage, right? That's not what that is. That's not like a, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have seven principles for a better marriage. We're going to have nine principles for a me- more effective work life. Let's do six principles for being a more— ob- What do you want that for? You want to come to church and get nine principles every week? Have you ever done the math of what 52 times 9 is? Do you really want that more—that many more things to do every year the rest of your life? None of those things can change you or me. Principles don't change us if we're dead, but there is one who can make us alive. Now, you might be like, okay, well, Nick, isn't this kind of, like, kind of allegorizing this because, I mean, honestly, like, I mean, isn't this about dead and the history of Israel? Okay, no. This is what it's about. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, it's very clear that he is not talking here about the death and resurrection of humans. He's speaking about our internal life and our internal deadness. In chapter 11, he starts on the theme, but one chapter before 37, he makes clear what he's talking about. He says this, and Ezekiel's the only one that uses this language quite this way. I will—this is God speaking— I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That is, I'm going to take away your sin. Your actual moral guilt is going to be removed. But I'm also going to help you stop loving idols. So all the things you want that are killing you, I'm going to help you not want them anymore. You see, that's more than just forgiveness. That's transformation, right? I will give you a new heart— and put a new spirit in you. And here's the phrase that's one of the most famous in Ezekiel. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see the image-based relationship between those two? Dead, dry bones that have to be made alive in a stone heart that can't feel, it can't beat, it can't do anything a heart is supposed to do. And he's saying, I will take that away and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. One that functions like it was meant to. That is what this passage is about. It's about, the theological term for this is regeneration. That is, you can't make yourself alive, but God can make you alive. Supernaturally, in a way that is unsubstitutable. There isn't an alternative to this claim. Interestingly enough, Christianity is actually the only faith in the world that teaches this. Every other faith is about some kind of internal or external transformation or behavioral performance. Christian faith is the only faith that teaches that you're stone dead. You are stone dead, and only God supernaturally can make you alive. Now, the the, the third thing that comes in this passage is, is that that activity is always accompanied by faith. God has required that when he does the work of regeneration, it would be accompanied by faith. That is, us believing and trusting. Now, you might be like, well, why would that be? Well, think about it psychologically just for a second. What does faith assume in terms of human change if you think about what I said in the beginning, right? The one thing God has to do in us, psychologically for us to really be transformed is we have to get off the old plan, right? To put it allegorically, we have to quit trying to go back to Israel, right? As long as we're still trying to go back to Jerusalem, as long as we don't really want to change, what good is it to regenerate a heart? Right? Now, whether the regeneration creates the desire, whether they come— Now, people have been arguing about that for a couple of— Couple, well, probably a couple millennia, you could probably say that. Definitely for 600 years, right? But the two are always together. You always see them together. But it's important to recognize this that the faith doesn't create the regeneration, it doesn't create it. It does nothing. Okay? Think about th- 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 Try thinking about it this way. Um, when Ezekiel says to the dry bones, live, and they do. Did Ezekiel make the dry bones live? No, he did not, right? He, God told him to say something. He said, to the, he said, the sovereign Lord says, wake up, right? And something happens. He, he had to do it. God required that that be part of it, but he didn't make the dry bones come to life, right? One of the reasons this is important is because one of the birds that I just wish that I could kill in large numbers and that that would be morally possible is robins. Okay, now I, re- I realize they're relatively pretty with that burnt orange and everything, but um, the thing that annoys me about them so so much is that they start so early and they have one song, right? Da some girl came up to me after the last service. She's like, listen, I grew up next to this pond. And when the frogs get in there for mating, it's like, it's like, it's worse. I was like, it's not worse because they just do it all, the same all night. You can fall asleep to that. That's like dripping water. I was like, the robin, is the minute you think you're out. She's like, and you're like, where is he? Right? It's kind of like people, you should grow arborvitaes. It's good for the songbirds. I just want to get out my chainsaw and cut them all down. <laughs> Sorry, that was an aside you could imagine—I mean, surely God—I don't—okay, that's kind of a speculation, but like, I mean, you could sort of imagine, like, the, the, the robins get going before the sun rises, right? And then the sun comes up, and you kind of wonder if some of them get the idea that they make it happen. You know what I'm saying? That, like, God gave them this ability to sing, like, all these diverse songs, and like—for all that we know, robins have, like, the most— equipped vocal cords of all birds, right? And they sing that one stupid song. I wonder if it's because like 9,000 years ago, some robin was like, like warming up for the morning, right? And he's like, Da-da! and then he noticed it was getting lighter and like got it in his head. He's like, I think I'm doing this. Are we, do we do, I'm doing this. Sing it this way. Right? It, it makes the sun come up. And they're like, and then all the robins, tell all the other robins, we make the sun come up. Can you put, you just, here's a song. No, get rid of all those other songs. You got to empty your whole iPod, all 10,000 songs. Ta-da! Right? Which I mean, you could just imagine if that was the only song, you, you can understand why they would fly into windows to try to kill themselves. Right? It's Listen to me. Christians act like that. Okay? We act like that. We 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 act like like we our faith saves us like a Robin singing makes the sunrise. It doesn't. It. They accompany each other. In the providence and sovereignty of God, they were meant to accompany each other. For some reason, avion music and sunrising goes together. And it always seems to go together in the non cursed months. Which is like three around here, right? <laughs> but the one doesn't cause the other. They must be together, but they don't cause each other. Well, one might cause the other, but the bird the sun might may- the sun might make the robin sing, but the robin doesn't make the sunrise. Right? And you see, if you believe that, if you believe. If you put your faith in your faith because you think your faith will regenerate you, here's what happens. You You feel as good about God and you have as much emotional power to change as you have strong faith. Here's the problem. You remember the three things the passage teaches? We don't really want to change. We have to be made supernaturally alive by God. And God requires faith. But if this happens after faith, so this hasn't happened—don't worry, I won't put my pinky down. Then how do you get faith? <laughs> if, if we don't really want to change because of our condition, And we need faith for regeneration, how does this—how does that go? You see? And here's the answer to that. The answer is, is that Ezekiel was not the first mover in this. Right? We may be just dried up bones, but, but God, God provides leadership by saying— that's not the verse I'm reading right now— he says to Ezekiel, says, Ezekiel, you tell them to wake up. You see, God provides leadership for Ezekiel. How does he provide leadership for us? It's very clear in this passage how he provides leadership for us, especially if you've been here the last seven or eight weeks where I've been preaching through the passages about the Messiah Jesus coming in the prophets that precede Ezekiel, right? He says in this passage, God says, because remember in chapter 34, he said, I will be their shepherd, right? God says, I'm going to get rid of all these worthless human pastors, and I'm going to be their shepherd myself, right? But then look what he says in this passage. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd— they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Now, that's kind of interesting because God said he was going to be their shepherd, and now he says that his servant David will be their shepherd, and they only have one. Which is interesting because is the shepherd David's son, a son of Adam, or is he God who will himself be their shepherd? Well, there's only one really simple answer to that question— is if their shepherd is the one in all of human history who was the God-man, the son of God incarnate, the one who is himself God, that Isaiah said would be called wonderful counselor and mighty God, but would still be the suffering servant who would die and rise to win a people to himself. Right? If your Bible chronology is a little wobbly, David is already dead 400 years by the time this comes. So he's not talking about literal David, 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 David. He's talking about a king that would come in David's line— And that king would be king over them, but he would also be their one shepherd. In context of chapter 34, those shepherds are the priests. That is, he's going to wipe out the priest class, and all of God's people would have one priest. Right? Which, if you come in a couple of weeks, Zechariah is really fun on this, because in almost all the nations of the world, the king was the head priest of the nation. One of the only nations that was not true was Israel. God divided the powers— The king was not the priest, and the king was never the prophet. Because when they had to fight each other, they did. This is the first time in all the history of God's people where God makes the king, the line of kings, and the line of priests come together in a single person. In the book of Zechariah, God has that prophet take the chief priest and to put the king's crown on his head and to say, this is the man who is the branch— which is the word for the Messiah in Jeremiah. And guess what the guy's name is? Joshua. Transliterated into Greek is? Jesus. And Zechariah doesn't say, this is a guy who's like the words. This is what Zechariah says, this is the man whose name is the branch, meaning that 400 years before Jesus came, in line with this prophecy that he would be the great king priest, he was prophesied by name. We'll talk about that more in three or four weeks. You see, he provided leadership, but here's the issue. He didn't just provide leadership in forgiveness, that Jesus died for your sins. That happened, but that's not all. And he didn't just provide new leadership as a priest or ruler over all God's people, the the risen king, which he did. But he actually provided more than that because— he requires for us to receive that forgiveness and to be regenerated by God's power and to be part of his eternal kingdom so that we know that he's Lord and we'd be, he, we would be his people and he would be his God. We need one more thing. We need the capacity for faith. Where does that, where's that gonna come from? And you see, Jesus provided that. You see, just like God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the dry bones, right? He said that. He said, he said Ezekiel? Now think about this. Where would Ezekiel get the faith to do that? Ezekiel didn't have the faith to do that because when God said to him, can these dry bones live? He didn't say, yes, they can, and I'm going to go get them, tiger. He didn't do that. He turned to God and was like, what does only you know, Lord, mean if you translated that into a sentence about faith? It'd be something like, I don't have any faith for that. I don't believe that. I mean, I don't believe that can happen from anything in my experience. And so God says, look at them and say, The sovereign Lord says, come back to life, right? That is, God says to Ezekiel, I exist, and I am going to make this happen. Now say it. You see what God is doing? He is providing for the one who has no faith an experience sufficient to believe and act. In that sense, God doesn't make Ezekiel believe, but he provides the grounding of the faith so that the man who doesn't want to change can In that sense, Jesus does the exact same thing. One of the things that makes this clear is in, is in Mark's gospel. There's this interesting story where um, Jesus is talking to some people, and there's, there's this paralyzed guy who's got some buddies. They dig a hole in the ceiling—some of you might remember this story—and they lower the paralyzed guy down in front of Jesus, right? And he wants to be healed, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, right? And the, there's religious teachers, and they're like, "What?" So everybody's confused. This guy's like, "I wanted to be healed, not forgiven." And these guys are like, "What are you doing talking about sins, right?" So this, is, and now pay attention to what this says. When Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Okay. So he sees that he has faith on the basis of forgiveness. Okay. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, so he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? Now think about this. Which is easier? To say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Right? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because if you say take up your mat and walk, he'd better take up his mat and walk, right? But you can't actually see sins be forgiven, right? Your sins are forgiven. Be like, I mean, like, How how would I know that? I mean, you just said something, right? So he's like, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, mind you, it's not easier to do that. It's much easier to make a paralytic walk than to forgive sins. That's what Jesus is insinuating. But it's much easier to say get up and walk, right? And so he says this, But so that you may know— that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Do you see what happened there? These people don't have any faith. He wants them to be able to believe that he, the Son of Man, can forgive sins. Nobody believes that. So he does something harder— so they can believe something easier. He does something bigger so they can believe something smaller. Now, it's not actually bigger. It's just bigger to them. They can see it, and so he heals somebody, not so that that guy can be healed mainly. He says, so that you may know that I can forgive sins. Get up. Now, think about this. How on earth can you and I possibly believe that regeneration can or has happened to us? It's easy to say, right? Hey, we Christians, when we believe in Jesus, we're supernaturally regenerated from the inside out. We're different creatures. The Bible calls us new creations. It's the new birth, right? And yet, how do you, how do you know that? I mean, how do, you, how do you show that? I mean, I know people who have said to me, Nick, I, I will never be one of those born-again Christians. Why? Because what they've seen is people who claim to be regenerate who <laughs> don't act like it. How can you know that? And you see, and if you think you become regenerate on your faith, your ability to believe that's happened to you is only as good as your faith is. And how good is your faith? Disappointing. Unless you're a different creature than I am. Disappointing. So how does this work? You see? And here's here's how it works. Jesus does the greater so that you can believe the easier. He does the harder so that you can believe the lesser. He rises from the dead so that you can believe a stone heart can really become flesh, that sins can really be forgiven. All of the claims Jesus makes that you can't empirically prove, I can say to you, look, you believe in Jesus? You trust him that he died for you? Your sins are forgiven. You're a new creature. God's, God, the living God, his spirit is inside of you. You have a totally new identity, a totally new history, and a totally new future. Everything has changed. And you go, great, I don't feel a thing. <laughs> I just hope there's a ham for dinner tonight. <laughs> How do you believe any of that? And you see, Jesus said so so that you may know. I'll do the, the harder so that you can believe the easier. Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't have to do it physically. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have to do that. He did it to show, right? The Apostle Paul says, it shows G- God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. It shows that God delivered us from death. It shows, the resurrection is designed to show, to show that you can be regenerated to show that your sins can be forgiven or are forgiven. Now, if you don't normally go to uh, church—this, like, one minute left, okay? If you don't normally go to church, you know I'm gonna plug for you to go to church. I'm gonna. And here's why. It's not because we get together to get more religious. It's just not. Nobody wants that, right? That was the problem with the second half of Israel's history, right? The first half is they did whatever they wanted, right? They were irreligious. And then well, what was it like when by the time Jesus showed up? It was legalism. It still wasn't the way it's supposed to be. They just it was just the other error. And that's not why we do Here's why we get together. We get together because we lose our faith every minute. And we come together to remind to be reminded that our life does not come from our faith. It doesn't come from our our, how good we are. It doesn't come from how how well we performed. We come to be reminded of the one thing that we forgot all week, which is that the resurrected Jesus gives us life. He makes us alive. And we just have to believe that. Every ounce of actional godliness comes from the heart that believes that. The minute you believe what Jesus says about you, you could be godly. You wouldn't want to lie. You wouldn't want to cheat anyway. I mean, all the the ethical stuff just flows out of the fact that you belong to God. You're his child. You're an heir of all eternity. You've been regenerated from the inside out. God himself has died. I mean, you put that stuff together. God himself lives inside of you. Anything you do, you do in union with the holy God. I mean, how could you—anything—I mean, it's impossible. But we don't believe any of that. And I'm not just talking to you if you don't believe in Jesus. None of us believe any of that. Like we should. Like we could. We don't come here we don't we come here to learn more about the gospel. We come here to apply it to more places of our life and we come here to remember what we're constantly forgetting. So that we don't become any more irreligious or religious, but we become regenerate believers in Jesus and his followers. And if you do come to church a good bit, let me just, just to remind you. Listen. Don't put your faith in your faith. Don't do that Don't comfort yourself that you're in the faith And you're God loves you and is walking with you Because you believe well You don't believe well We don't believe well God counts as faith What is terrible faith? Because faith and holiness Are essentially equatable To the extent to which we really Really believe We will be perfectly godly Because the two are totally congruent with each other. When we aren't perfectly godly, that tracks itself immediately back to somewhere we don't believe. And none of us are sinless. Our faith isn't that impressive. But God counts as faith and regenerates and teaches and walks with because God says, the one who I will make king, the Messiah, I will make their—remember?— Their shepherd and through him I will make a covenant of peace with them forever that will stretch out to all nations and my sanctuary the place I will be will be right there among them let's pray father thank you so much that we have something to celebrate thank you for doing the greater so we can believe the lesser I don't think I would be able to believe in your regenerative work in me. I feel it sometimes. I see it sometimes. If it was not for your dying and rising, if it was not for my, my trust in your statement that you do this in us, that you save, you keep, you shepherd, you. if I didn't believe that, if I believed it was either in my works or even in the quality of my faith, I don't know what I'd do. Thank you that you just simply count the existence of any faith pointed towards you as faith and that we're saved on the work of Christ and not on the quality of our faith. But God, we all want it. Those of us who believe in you, we want the quality of our faith to be more like the faithfulness of Jesus. Help us to be that and not become more irreligious or religious, but to walk with him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.